Well, good morning, Bethany Baptist Church. My name is J.D. Hedema, and I'm the lead pastor at Echo Church. Uh, we're currently meeting in the Chino, Chino Hills area, and I get the, the privilege of bringing the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, of course, we're recording on Friday, but you guys will be seeing this uh, on Sunday as you guys are gathering virtually uh, in your homes. And uh, it's a strange time we live in. It's, uh, it's really uh, a, a, an odd thing to be staring into a computer right now, into a camera, if you will, and uh, to be talking to you guys. But I'm going to trust that the Lord is going to work and that his grace is powerful even when we are in a, a, a season of, of uncertainty. Uh, and so what I'd like to do now is before we begin, just, uh, just open in prayer and then we'll jump into uh, the text uh, this morning. Lord Jesus, we come right now, all of us. I can pray with my brothers and sisters uh, because you are beyond time. So we come together to you and we recognize our, our, our frailty and our faults and our neediness before you. Lord, I confess my need of your strength right now during this time. I pray, God, that you would overcome my frailty, my humanity, my failures, um, sinful inclinations in my heart. Lord, would you overcome all of those things that you might be made glorious here, that you might be shown to be what you truly are, that we come to you, Lord, with hearts that are desiring you and longing for you, but that's an act that you must do. So, Lord, would you come and would you meet us? And as we open up your word, may there be fruit. May your Holy Spirit be working in hearts that that we would hear, Lord, from your word, all of us would hear from your word, uh, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. So come in power, fill us with your Holy Spirit now. Uh, we want something from you this, this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, well, it's good to be with you guys. And what I want to do right now is jump right into our text. We're going to be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 9. So for those of you that need some time to get there, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. I'd like to read the text. In fact, if you're able, and I know you're going to be all individually in your homes, but if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Let's read uh, his word together uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'll be reading out of the ESV. I apologize. I know many of you uh, are, are in the CSV. Uh, here's out of the ESV, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here's what I would like to do with our text this morning. We've, we, as a church, worked through this text uh, previously, and this would have been the second uh, sermon in, in the series that we, that we walked through. And the first sermon really uh, focused on an idea that Peter really puts into play at the very beginning of his letter. So if you look back in his letter, just a few verses from where we are, you see that Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Then he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists off a bunch of places where presumably this letter would have been sent to. So I'm curious about that word elect exiles. Peter really begins with this idea of elect exiles. And I would argue that that idea, that theme runs its way all the way through the book. So you can see this concept. Now, if you think about elect and exiles, that those two terms don't normally go together in our thinking. 
For instance, we, we think about the word uh, election. We think about the word elect. And what does it mean? It means, it means chosen, right? So for most of us know this, that the word means chosen. It means that we've been chosen. It's, it's, it has the idea of, I have a home. Someone has pointed me out and, and, and brought me into a home. You know, I have a friend who is, he and his wife are just about to finish their adoption, uh, all the paperwork to get it through for an adoption of a little girl from India. And what is incredible about that, in fact, about the whole picture of adoption, is here is a mother and a father saying to a, a little girl across the, across the globe, we are choosing you. We are picking you and we want you in our family. And what that should mean, what the, I pray that that means for her, that she grasps, she's just past one years old, but what I pray that she grasps when she's older is this idea of I am home. I have a father and a mother. They have chosen me. They've cared for me. So you can see that this idea of election means we're home. We're, we, we have a family. We have a father who has chosen us. We have a father who cares for us. It's sort of a warm feeling that we get when we think of election. But what he puts right next to it is the word exile. So if election, if being elect, speaks about us having a home, exile means that we're far from it. We're not near it. We, we live in a different place. We live out f far away from where our home is. And we experience the, the, the results of our being in exile regularly. So let's ask this question. How, how do we experience being exiles today? What are some ways that, 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 that we see exile happening in our world today? Well, let's, let's consider the first one. We are exiles in that we remain in a world that doesn't reflect and is increasingly hostile to the king and the values of our home country. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. We are exiles in that we remain in a world that doesn't reflect and is increasingly hostile to, that's growing in hostility, to the king and the values of our home country. Okay, so we have a king. We have a Lord. And that Lord has values. That Lord has said to us, this is my law. This is how I want human beings to live. This is how I want them to relate to me. And I would argue that we're living in a time of increase, and it has been happening for, for, for thousands of years, but we live in a time where we are increasing in our lawlessness. We are increasingly, uh, as a people, as humanity, rejecting the law of the Lord. We are saying to him, we want nothing to do with you. And Christians live in this world. We live amongst those that are increasingly more and more saying, we want nothing to do with you. So currently, for instance, the church is at odds with the world over sexual ethics. This is one way that we, uh, this is a place where we see the battle raging perhaps at its fiercest, right? I, I want to read for you something that, that we have at our church. So in, in order to come into membership at Echo Church, we ask you to sign a couple of documents. And one of them is our church covenant. That's, that should be familiar to you, to you guys at BBC. Uh, we also have them sign a statement of faith, also familiar to you at BBC. But one thing that we've We've, we've done that perhaps not every church does, and I'm not aware of you guys where, where you're at with this, but we have them sign a separate document, and the document in, at our church is called the Echo Church Statement on Marriage and Sexuality. Okay, so I just want to read for you a couple of lines out of this document, and I have a point for doing this, but I, I want you to just hear a few lines of it. Here's, here's a, few, a few sentences. Echo Church believes that God created mankind in his image, male, man, and female, woman, sexually different, but with equal personal dignity. Consequently, Echo Church members must affirm their biological sex and refrain from any and all attempts to physically change, alter, or disagree with their predominant biological sex. Okay, so there's just one statement. Now, why do I read that statement to you? I read that statement to you because we as a church felt that it was important and wise to adopt a statement like that. But 15 years ago, it would have been unheard of to adopt a statement like that. I mean, we would have been laughed at for, for, for feeling like we needed to guard against um, some, some niche way of thinking. But today, that has become, in, in, in many ways, the norm. 
And, and it may be that in, a, in, in decades to come, that, to, to even hold a position that we currently hold as Echo Church, uh, that, that a person should, um, should hold to their biological sex, uh, that that may indeed at some point become illegal. And so we, we, are, we are in a strange time. We're in a time where increasingly more and more the world has said no to what God has said yes to. To his law, they have rejected and rebelled against it in many ways. So we are in exile in that we live in that world, right? We, we, we live in a world where people are opposed to us. How about number two? We are exiles in that our hearts, our hearts are not yet perfectly loyal to our king. So if you, if you heard what I just said, you might think, well, the problem is out there, right? The, the, the big bad world out there and their rebellion against God, they're the ones that are the problem. But scripture speaks of more than that. Scripture tells us that our hearts itself, if you look inside of you, Christian, you will see that there is still remaining corruption and rebellion going on in your heart. Do you not feel a pull in your life away from the things of God from time to time? And, and by God's grace, you are being sanctified and, 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 uh, and, and the Holy Spirit is working in you and you are, you are feeling a greater victory as you go through life. I pray that that's happening for you. But it remains true that there is in you a remaining rebellion. And so there is an exile of sorts that you are living with, even in the, 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 the way that you make decisions and the way that you live in the world that you currently, um, that you currently possess. We are in exile in the sense that we uh, do not yet act the way we will one day when sin is done away with. And may it be soon that we see this sinful inclinations and the flesh ripped from us. That what will that feel like to finally be able to stand before God knowing that we don't have this, this fleshly part of us that is hanging on and, and, and tempting us regularly. But we live in this world now. Where in this world, before Jesus comes or before our death, we still live in this pole. And so we are still exiles because of the choices we make, because of the way we dishonor the Lord ourselves. How about number three? We are exiles in that our original parents, Adam and Eve, were exiled out of the perfection of the garden. Now, what, what does that mean? They were exiled out of the perfection of the garden. It means that we no longer live in a world that was operating the way the garden was operating. Okay, so most of you know the story of Adam and Eve, and you know that in the garden there was a perfection of the way the world worked. That, that, that fruit would just grow on trees, and, and you, could, you could sort of just sustain life through, through the way in which the, the, the soil was producing, and, and everything was working as it was originally intended to work. And then when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, when, when, when Adam and, and Eve ate of the fruit and disobeyed God in the garden, God did something with the world. The world no longer functioned the way it was supposed to function originally. One of the first things we saw in the book of Genesis was we saw that the, the ground no longer produced its, its produce. It, 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 the, the, the text says that by the toil of, of a man's brow shall he eat, right? So there's work involved in just getting the ground to produce a little bit. And we still live in that world. Not only that, but the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says this about our world. That in that sin, when that sin happened, that the world itself was subjected to futility. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says that it was subjected to futility by the one who subjected it in hope. Now, what that tells me is that the Lord himself, in that sinful, when that sinful act happened, that the Lord said, I'm going to subject the world to futility. In other words, the world isn't going to work like it should. And so we live in a world today that is actually in exile out of the garden. We live in a world today that doesn't function the way it should. And now, so when we look around us, we see things happening that are just not the way God had originally created them to be. And I'm not talking about sinful people doing sinful things. I'm actually talking about things like nature, nature going haywire. I'm talking about things like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes that kill people. I'm talking about 
um, tsunamis that will that will where the ocean rises and people will will be drowned and, and devastated. I'm talking about disease. We live in a world right now, right at this moment, where we are all feeling the the effects of a particular little tiny piece of of, of RNA, a, a little tiny replicating. Uh, almost DNA-like structure wrapped in some proteins, extremely tiny, that basically floats around looking for living organisms. And when it finds living organisms, it somehow can find its way inside, find its way into a cell by basically picking the lock of that cell, so to speak, getting inside and causing that cell to then turn on itself and start producing more of that little RNA. And that RNA keeps spreading and spreading and spreading. You know what we call that? We call that a virus. That this little tiny thing is in our world. And it spreads throughout our world. And we are experiencing it right now at this moment. And it's caused many to ask the question, well, what is going on here? What is happening? And my best answer from scripture is to say the world has been subjected to futility. The world doesn't operate the way it's supposed to. And I would argue that if you read in between the lines of that text that there is a hope. There's a hope for the one who subjected it. What's the hope? What is God's purpose and aim in all of this subjecting of the world? I believe it's this, that we might know our own futility by looking at the world around us that we might know that our hearts are not right as human beings when we look at the world not being right, that we would actually find our way to the Lord through the fact that we look around us and we say, there is something wrong with this world, and therefore there is something wrong with me. I need something more. I need the Lord to come and make me right because I am not right. So we live in exile at least in three ways. We live in exile in the fact that we live in a world that will persecute us because it is increasingly hostile to the God that we worship. Number two, we live in a world where our own hearts will betray us. Our own hearts still have a remaining corruption and a remaining flesh inside of us. And we live in a world that has been subjected to futility, meaning that because of, 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 of Adam's sin long ago, the world is not operating the way it should. And nature itself seems to at times rise against us. And none of this is the way that it ultimately is going to be. None of this was, was, was the way that God created it. And none of it is going to be the end result when we finally find ourselves at that place where he returns and wipes every tear from our eyes. But in the meantime, we live in exile. And Peter is writing a book to those who live in exile. They are elect. They have been chosen. They are God's people. They have a home with him in heaven, but they currently don't live there. They live far from it. And so what I want us to see in our text in verses 3 through 9 this morning is I want us to see that we can, we can divide the text up into two different sections now, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we're going to see there that, that Peter is talking about the gift of our salvation, Okay, so verses 3 through 5 will be our first section. We're going to call it the gift of our salvation. And then verses 6 through 9, I want you to see that there, Peter is talking about the confirmation of our salvation through joy and suffering. Okay, so the first part of our, of our sermon uh, this morning will be the gift of our salvation. And the second part of our sermon will be the confirmation of that gift. Is it really true? Through joy and suffering. Okay, so let's look. Here's the main point if you're taking notes. Elect exiles live in the joy that flows from our future salvation, which is confirmed through suffering. Let me say that one more time. Elect exiles live in the joy that flows from our future salvation, which is confirmed through suffering. So our salvation becomes confirmed as we suffer and we remain joyful in that suffering. That seems to be the idea that Peter is getting at here. So let's look again at the first half of our text. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. And I'm going to pause. I'm going to stop right there. Here's the point. Here's the point we want to make from this section. Number one is elect exiles rejoice in their salvation even when it isn't yet visible. Okay? They rejoice in their salvation even when it isn't yet visible. Now, there are two reasons here that Peter says that we should joyfully praise God. So first, notice that at the very beginning he says, Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The idea is that praise be to God. I'm, so Peter begins the whole letter by just saying, I'm praising you, God. I want you to know how my heart is just rejoicing in you, and I'm, I'm extolling your virtue and your, your attributes and your character and all that you are. Praise be to you. That's what blessed be means. And so Paul begin, or Paul, Peter begins with praise. He begins with praise, and there are two reasons why, particularly, he's praising here. Number one is this. God caused your salvation. If you are saved and you're hearing my voice and you've come to trust in Christ, that was ultimately because God caused it. That's reason number one. Look again at the text. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice that it says here, he has caused us to be born again. Why are we blessing God? Why, why is Peter saying, God, God, I want to praise your name. I, my, my heart is just lifted up with a desire to praise you because you have caused us to be born again. This is a work that God has done. Now, I want to talk about this word born again for a second. This is a word that we will oftentimes hear outside of the church. For instance, if you hear uh, political correspondents talking, they might talk about born again Christians. Uh, it, it can be, it, at least at one point in our history, it was a very political term that, that, was, that was angled at Christians. And, and for, for in general, if you talk to people, they, they will identify a certain kind of, of Christian, or at least in their mind, a certain kind of Christian with the title, a born-again Christian. And that means a variety of different things to them. I want to talk about what it means in the Bible. What does it mean in the Bible to be born again? When Peter uses this term, he has caused us to be born again. I think he's actually getting that term from Jesus himself. And I think Jesus himself used the term in John 3, at least, probably elsewhere. But in John 3, you guys might remember this conversation that Jesus had with a guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But in John 3, 5, here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So this text tells us that we need to be born again of the Spirit. So what does that mean, to be born again of the Spirit? Well, Jesus tells us that in our first birth, we have become flesh and blood. So I think he's talking about there this idea of we've been, everybody's been born once, right? So if you're alive right now, you've been born once. And he says you were born of, of the flesh at that point, that you were physically born. And, um, and it, but, but it seems to, it's very, very clear from Scripture that being born once doesn't get us into heaven. Being born once doesn't save us. And there's a reason for that, right? The, the reason is that as we understand Scripture, and as we see the story of our humanity and what has happened, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned. And when they sinned, it was like their descendants from that point on carried a hereditary disease with them that trickled down from descendant to descendant to descendant, and that's passed to you today, and it's passed to me. Every single person that lives today is ultimately a descendant of our forefather, Adam, and his sin and his guilt has trickled down from him to us, and, and it infects, if you will, every single human being on the planet. So to be born at this point, to be born is to be born into a form of guilt that we cannot free ourselves from. 
It isn't like some avoided the disease. Every single person in humanity has found themselves guilty before God. Now, not only are we guilty, but we go on to produce more sin. We are not just guilty in that we've been declared guilty for some, you know, by some outside source. We actually are guilty in the way that we live, and we can't break free from that. So Jesus says it is not enough to be born, to be born once. You must be born again of the Spirit. Now, of course, there he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about the fact that we must come to Christ, right? What does the Bible say that we need to do? Repent and believe. And what does Jesus say at that point that happens? The Holy Spirit comes inside of our hearts. This is absolutely incredible that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has made residence inside of your heart. It's amazing because in the Old Testament, it used to be that to go and have an actual encounter with God at this level, you needed to be in a place called the temple. And you needed to be able to go into the inner sanctum of the temple where it was, God sort of was in his physical presence, or at least as close as we can to physical presence that was there, the holy of holies of the temple, and only a few could ever go. But what happened when Christ came, when he purchased through his blood, people for himself. He didn't just purchase our, our, the redemption of our sin. He purchased the, that the Holy Spirit would come and would take residence inside of us. And so we as people now live with the Holy Spirit inside of us. We are born again of the Spirit. We have this new life inside of us. So he says that this is not something that we can do ourselves. Can anybody be born? Can they just decide, you know what, I'm going to be born, and so, I'm going to, and, so, and so they're born? No, no, no child says, you know what, I, I, I think it's time to be born, and then they're born. There are outside forces at work causing a little baby to be born, and that's the idea that's happening here. The Bible speaks about being born again as a metaphor, if you will, of our salvation. The Bible also speaks about resurrection as being a metaphor of salvation. You know this, this, the similarities between the two? Both being born and resurrecting from the dead are things you cannot do unless someone else do, does them to you. Okay? Someone else needs to birth you. Someone else needs to, uh, the old Bible word was to beget you. Like, like you need to be, like, like sperm and egg need to come together in order for you to even exist in this physical world. And if you're a dead person, there is no way you can raise yourself. We get this, right? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says that he cried out with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come forth in John eleven forty three, And Lazarus came forth. And there was no deliberating. There, was no, there wasn't him going, sitting there as a dead man going, you know, I wonder if I'm going to obey that command. Jesus spoke the command and Lazarus came forth. Simple as that. So the idea here is we have not caused anything in our new birth. Being born again is not something that we decided to do. Being raised again, as the Bible often describes the new life as a Christian, right? Paul will say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, right? There's a part of us that dies when we come to Christ. And the Bible often speaks about resurrection to new life that has taken place when we come to Christ. Right? I've been crucified with Christ and the life without which I now live, right? I, I, I live by his power, right? I live in, in the glory that he has, has called me to and by his strength. So we now have new life because of that and we didn't cause it. So Peter says rejoice in that. He tells us, blessed be God. Why? Because you've caused us to be born again. And this wasn't of our own doing. This wasn't our own power that caused us to do it. This was your work, God. So praise be to you, God, not to us. Now, reason number two that he's praising God here. If God, if God caused our salvation, if he is the one that brought it about, God is going to finish our salvation. That's reason number two. Let's continue on and look at 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. He says that he caused us to be born again to what? To what? Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice that the inheritance that we have there in the text is imperishable. Notice that it is kept in heaven. That is, it's kept safe. Notice that you are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's a salvation coming for you in the last time. But right now, in the here and now, is that salvation yet fully grasped? No. But what does he say? We are being guarded until we get to that place. Oh, my goodness. So not only did God cause our salvation and not us. Not only did God bring it about, scripture now says that God is guarding us, that Jesus says that those who the Father has put into my hand, not a single one am I going to let out of my hand. So we are guarded. We are cared for in this salvation. So the idea is this, that your eternity is secure if you are trusting in Jesus. Now, you might, you might ask a question at that point. Where is that in the text? Where does it say, if I'm trusting in Jesus? Does, is that part of the equation? Trusting in Jesus, is that part of what's happening here? Notice the words through faith there in the text. Do you see it? That we are being, that we are being guarded through faith. And I, wa- I want to read it just so we've got it. We are to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. What's happening there? That faith is the moment in which we come to trust in Jesus, and it is an ever-living forward faith, right? As opposed to the faith that, off that, that James talks about in the Bible, that there's such a thing as dead faith. There's such a thing as claiming to believe, but yet your actions don't back up what you're actually claiming. This is true and living faith. This is a person that comes to Christ and says, I'm leaning on you. I'm trusting on you. And I, if you'll pardon the expression, it means this. I'm pushing all of my poker chips in and I'm betting on Jesus. Now, I realize some of you may feel like, oh, that's a, that's a horrible expression to speak about that. But at least it captures in some sense this idea of there is no one else that I am gonna, I'm going to lean on, put my trust on, than Christ. I'm certainly not going to go after a false idol and try to say that that thing is going to satisfy me. It's Christ alone that is going to satisfy me. So we rejoice in Jesus. We bless God. Why? Because he caused our salvation and he's going to finish it. Now, this brings us to an important question. How do we know that this salvation has truly been caused, been brought about in us, that we have truly become born again, and that we are truly being kept and guarded? And this is a question that many, many Christians ask. In fact, it's a question that scripture itself tells us to ask that we are to examine ourselves, 2 Corinthians says, to see whether we are in the Lord. So how do we answer that question? Is that true of me? Do I really have that great salvation that Peter is praising God for? It's one thing to say rejoice in it, but we need to know that we have it in order to be able to rejoice in it. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let's continue on in our text now. And I want you to see now how Peter answers that question. How do we know that we really have this? Peter says this, In this, in that salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, though it, um, which perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I want you to notice something extremely important in that text. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Do you see it there? Do you see the word so that at the beginning of the the, the verse? I hope that that's there in your CSV Bibles. It should be. It's there in the ESV, and it's the words so that. I can't tell you how important those words are. 
Those are words that oftentimes, if, if we're honest, when we're doing our, when we're looking at our Bibles, we're having our quiet times, when we're spending time studying the word, we'll oftentimes skip over words like that, right? Because they're just little and we're, we're not always quite sure what they mean. And we're not always doing the, the mental work to try to figure out how that sentence relates to that sentence. This is one of those words that we should not miss the words, so that. What does so that do? What does the word so that do? It tells us that something came before it that had a purpose. There was a reason. There was a purpose for the thing that came before. And then the words after the so that are going to tell us what the purpose was. So whatever happened before the so that had a purpose. And then the, 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 whatever the thing is after the so that is going to tell us what the purpose is. So what came before it? Well, lots came before it, but we can see this. You have been grieved by various trials. You have been grieved by various trials, so that. What does that mean? It means that to be grieved by various trials is not an accidental event. To have trials happen in our lives is not something where God somehow looked away, forgot about our little world for a second, and then looked back and went, oh no, how did that happen? When trials happen to you and I, they happen for a purpose. There's something behind them. There's something God is doing, something he is working. Now, here's what's amazing. The so that is going to tell us now what it is that he's working what it is that the purpose is for us to endure a trial. I think a fitting thing for what's going on right now, because many of us would describe what we're experiencing right now as a trial. Why do these happen? What does God tell us about why these things happen? Well, there's a so that there. Let's look at what it is. Trials have a purpose. Persecution has a purpose. Cancer has a purpose. Coronavirus has a purpose. Losing someone in your family that you love has a purpose. And the words so that now tell us what that purpose is. 1 Peter 1.7, so that. Why do, why do trials happen? 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, what's it going to do? May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, now I'm going to skip a section here, may be found to result in glory and praise and honor. Okay, so trials then provide the test for whether we're in. Now here's the question. What behavior in a trial does a Christian exhibit that someone who isn't a Christian doesn't exhibit in the same circumstances? Now that's a long question. I've, I've had a hard time trying to get that down into a simplified sentence, but let's try it one more time just so we all get it. What behavior in a trial does a Christian exhibit that a, a, someone who isn't a Christian in the same trial, same circumstances in their life doesn't exhibit? Whatever that is, that's what's going to demonstrate the fact that they truly actually are in the faith, that they really have been caused to be born again and kept guarded throughout this time until the salvation becomes theirs. And Peter is going to give us an answer in these next verses. Let's look again in verses 8 through 9. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now here's point number two if you're taking notes. Elect exiles know they belong to Jesus when they rejoice in him, even though he is obscured by trials. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time. Elect exiles know that they belong to Jesus when they rejoice in him, even though he is obscured by trials. Christians love Jesus 
even when Jesus isn't visible. Now, we know this is true because we know that right now in our world, Jesus isn't physically visible, right? We know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that happened 2,000 years ago, roughly. And we know that we've been given the Holy Spirit, but we know none of this actually forms our visible, like we cannot physically see any of that, right? And we call that faith. But I don't think it just means that Jesus isn't visible physically. I think that what happens in a trial is sometimes what seems to take place in our hearts is that we say, Jesus, where are you in the midst of a trial? We may have felt a certain nearness to God, but when a trial comes into our lives, a lot of times, what a, what a lot of people experience is they experience a sense of, I don't know where God is right now. I can't feel that same emotion. I can't feel the, the, the same comfort that I felt like I had when all of the circumstances were going well in my life. In other words, Jesus seems to at times be obscured by trials. Jesus seems to at times be eclipsed by trials, at least in a certain sense. Where is God? What's he doing? If you found yourself asking that question right now during our current pandemic, you wouldn't be alone. Where is he? I don't know that I feel him like I felt him before. I used to gather with my church. Church, I'm standing in your congregation right now. These, this, this room used to be full. And now we sit here and we, and we, and we gather at our, at, our, at our homes. And what's wrong? What's going on in the world, right? God, where are you? And now it is the Christian that through all of that, there is still a deep sense of joy and of love for him, even when he seems to be obscured by trials. There is a sense of deeper understanding and what we would call faith that is, is deeper than what my emotions feel and what my eyes can see. And it is that that Christians have. And it is that that many, many people who claim to be Christians do not have because we will see them fall away in the midst of trials. Couldn't find God. God, God was there while things were good, but God left me when things were bad. Unfortunately, that's all too common in our world today. And so we find that we, we have a great test that now comes upon us when we have trials. And in that testing, we find out whether we are truly in the faith, if we will hold on and endure and continue in our joy and our love of Jesus, even when we don't have answers for how this is all going to work out. So let me ask you this. If you have been one of those that has said, Jesus, where are you right now? Let me ask you this. Can you rejoice still in the moment? Or are you so tied to your emotional experience of Christianity that everything seems to be going well, and when everything seems to be going well, then I'm okay. But if something goes haywire, if something flips upside down in my world, now I'm immediately stepping out of Christianity and going, I'm done. Does your emotional experience trump all when it comes to your relationship with Christ? Or is there something deeper that is deeper than your emotions, that is deeper than the fact that you're grieving right now? Yes, Peter says it, we will be grieved by trials. But is there something deeper underneath the surface? Faith is deeper than your emotions. It shows itself most when the emotions are not there. Hence, when trials come, we oftentimes see the truth of who we really are. And so this is a call for us to examine our lives. It's a call for us to look at who we really are. Here's 1 Peter 1.8, one more time, the second half. Though you do not now see him, okay? Think about our current day and age right now. Think about our current moment where we are with a pandemic going on, wondering what the future holds. Though you do not now see him, Peter says, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Not only does he say there that we believe in him, 
Okay, that's one thing to say is that, okay, to say, all right, I'm still in, I'm still a Christian, I still believe that Jesus was, you know, a guy, he was, he was God who came down and he, he was a man and he, he took on human flesh and he died on a cross and he saved us of our sins and you can say all of that. But here's what Peter says, not only do you believe in him, you rejoice over that. And what do you rejoice with? with joy that is inexpressible. There is a depth to our happiness and our joy in the midst of being grieved by trials. Joy is there right alongside of us. One of the things we've got to understand about joy is it's not the opposite of sadness. Okay? It isn't that, that I, joy is a happy feeling and sadness is a sad feeling. That doesn't do joy justice in Scripture. Because here, Peter is talking about the fact that we have been grieved by trials. Is a grieved person happy? Joy remains in the midst of grief. Joy remains in the midst of pain. It isn't like flippant worldly happiness. You, you guys know this, right? If you, if you go to Disneyland, right? You... You go to Disneyland and you are, it's the happiest place on earth. And so you go there and you're there with maybe your family and, and everybody's really excited to go. And then I've got to actually pull out my wallet and I've got to pay for Disneyland, right? And then my joy, just my happiness just goes, Poo, and it drops all the way down. And I go, I can't believe how much this costs. This is insane. I mean, a park hopper pass is, you know, feels like it's hundreds of dollars now. And then we'll go on a, on a ride and, and I'll wait 40 minutes in line to, to ride like, like Peter Pan, which is like a 90-second ride. And I, I'm, I'm, my, joy, my, my happiness is going up and down and up and down throughout the entire trip to Disneyland because Disneyland represents a certain kind of earthy, worldly happiness that is here today and gone tomorrow. And it's doing everything it can as a park to make everybody feel really good, which I'm not condemning. I'm just saying that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is there in the midst of pain. You remember the Apostle Paul that oftentimes would write in his letters, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That in the midst of sorrow, joy is there. So it isn't the opposite of sadness. It's what undergirds sadness in the Christian. It's what keeps the Christian from going from sadness to despair. Are you sad during this time? That's okay. That's a, that's a human emotion, sadness. Are you grieved during this time? Peter says that Christians are going to be grieved through various trials. But is your joy there? Does your joy remain in the midst of your sorrow? I believe this is the test. I believe this is what God is calling us to. And I believe this is one of the purposes for trials in our lives. That when everything is going well, we just don't quite know if we are in the faith simply because things are going well. But when things go start to go wrong, it's at that point that we can actually look inside of our hearts and go, I'm real. I'm really in the Lord because I'm holding fast to my Jesus in the midst of this time. Now, what does Peter say this is all going to result in? Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Notice that God the Father has already begun salvation at the beginning of our text this morning. Blessed be God our Father. Why? He's caused us to be born again. And he's keeping our salvation. But here, this is talking about a salvation that is still yet ahead of us. That as we experience joy in the midst of pain and in the midst of trials in this life, what it's doing is it's showing us that we really are those that will one day stand on that last day before God and we will hear the words righteous declared over us. We will hear the words enter into my kingdom declared over us. We will hear the words, I believe, well done, good and faithful servant declared over us. That it is for those that have said, I have endured through the trials of this life and I have demonstrated through that, that my God really has caused salvation to be born in me, that he is really keeping me. And what, re what ends up resulting there is that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, 
the salvation of our souls. Now, why does a Christian keep joy during this time? One of the reasons a Christian can keep joy during this time is because they have their eyes focused on the end. They have their eyes focused on 1 Peter 1.9 and other verses like it where Peter will say, here's the end for you, Christian. Here's where it's going to all terminate. That one day we will stand before Jesus and see him face to face in a place where there will be no more disease and there will be no more pain and trials and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and sin will be gone from us. And we will stand before him in perfect, in perfection and in harmony and in a garden-like state. And Christians in the midst of this time hang on to that vision. They hang on to scripture at that, pl- that place and they say, we're hanging on through this trial because we have our minds set, our eyes set on him, as it says in Hebrews, the author and the perfecter of our faith when we get to see him face to face. That's what we're longing for. That is why Christians have said for 2,000 years, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly because we long to see you. And for everyone who is truly trusting in the Lord, that's what holds their joy in place. That's what locks them in when the trials of this life happen. And I want to challenge you and encourage you that you would get your eyes on the end, the picture of the end. See it. Let it be the reason why you can endure all these things and it will compound joy upon joy upon joy as you realize that we're heading somewhere. This isn't it for us. We're going somewhere. We're going to end better than we have right now. We're going to end where we see the Lord. And he is our full and perfect satisfaction. So let's pray together. Father, we come now asking that you would work in us. Asking that you would have a perfect work in us that would give us an idea, a vision of what you would have us see in that short time we have until we see you. And by this time standards and the earth and the, and the human history standards, it is but a blip, a blink of an eye before we stand before you and we enter into your kingdom in the fullest possible sense. And so God, may that vision drive us even when this world is going haywire, it feels. Would you help us to hold on that we can look inside of our hearts and say, there is genuine faith here because I have not walked away when things got hard. Help us to hold on. Keep us as you've promised you will keep us. Cause more to be born again in that salvation. Cause them to be born again. Perhaps some are hearing my voice right now who have not yet trusted in Christ. Lord, would you bring about salvation in them as they realize this world is flipped upside down. This world is not a place to put our hope. You are our firm and solid rock and everything else is sinking sand. So Lord, would you do that in our hearts as my friends are gathered to hear these these words from your word. God, do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.